Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Coming up on this week's show, more news on the Dragon's Lair movie. Create your own universe in Elite. And we take a look inside EA Sports Games with Harvey Keller. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every week with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, their latest book, I'm Too Young to Die, The Ultimate Guide to First-Person Shooters, covering the early experimental years of the FPS game and celebrating more than 180 games as they track the genre's explosive entrance into the 90s gaming scene. You can check that out on the rest of their retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.com. And with our friends at PCBWay. Now, they offer a fully featured custom PCB prototype service, and they've got low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards, and they can offer stuff like 3D printing and injection molding, and they're massive supporters of the retro community. So if you're working on a project right now, you can get an instant quote at PCBWay.com. Hello, and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 353. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's show, the podcast every single Friday. We pump it out over the information superhighway straight into your brain or, uh, or your phone or your smart speaker, at least. Actually, I did have someone the other day ask, you know, can I listen to the Retro Hour on my, uh, my A word? A you know word? What I mean? What's an A word? I won't say because it'll trigger those um, oh, cylindrical oh, objects. Okay, I have. thought it was a, a rare like MP3 player from the 90s or something. Always in retro your head, Ravi, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. But yeah, if you have got a smart speaker, all you have to do is ask it, play the Retro Hour podcast, and that should work. So dead easy way to oh, listen nice. to it in the kitchen while you're doing the pots or whatever. Now, it has been a bit of a crazy week. Um, and before we get into all the news that's been going on this week and we talk about our incredible guests that we've got, can we just pause for a second and just say, a huge thank you to the people who've made us 57% of the way there on our book launch Kickstarter that we launched last Friday. Now, I don't know about you guys. We knew that we were launching this at a really difficult time. But I mean, we thought, you know, when we're looking at the, the ups and downs of it, we've been doing this for a year. The cost of paper, the cost of everything keeps going up. And it could be even more in six months time. So we thought now or never. And we're like, well, you know, is it going to happen? But the fact that people have pretty much got us over halfway there in just a week is absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah, we're absolutely beyond thankful. And I, I keep looking at it in kind of like disbelief, you know, that we we are just over halfway there at the point of, of recording this, like six days into it. It is just, yeah, it's mind-blowing and we are forever thankful. And, you know, I've, I've said it before as well, the fact that we even have an opportunity to do it and, you know, and even kind of fathom that is a thing that might potentially happen is just unreal to us. And, you know, we've said it like five times now, but thank you so much for backing it. And, you know, if you, if you do want to check it out, it'll be in the show notes, you know, even just having a look at it is, is really cool. So thank you so much. Yeah. And it is, um, it is a book 
a collection of 10 of our favourite interviews from the podcast with lots of exclusive content, some gorgeous pictures all the way through it as well. We actually did a little uh, feed drop episode during the week, so you can listen to that to find out more. Um, and if you want to get a link directly to the Kickstarter. We've only got a few weeks to make it happen. Fingers crossed we will. Uh, with your help, I'm sure we can get there. But uh, if you have a look at our website, you'll see it on the front page of theretrohour.com. And thank you to everyone who supported our book launch so far. Now, some big news stories to get into in just a minute. And of course, we're keeping up, you know, the, the big guests that we bring you every week on the show. And if we're talking sports games, they do not come much bigger than EA. Yeah. So um, this week we're talking to Happy Keller. And this is a really interesting interview. So Happy joined EA when they were kind of, you know, in those early days. And they were also doing some titles like uh, Ski or Die, Skate or Die as well, mm. which was a, a pretty cool like little range of games, but then they really got into the kind of sponsored games. And, you know, they had uh, people fronting these as well. So, of course, Madden was an absolutely huge title. PGA Golf Tour as well, like mm. a, a lot of the kind of golfing games as well. And there's a lot of development and stuff that happened within these games. You know, we say at the beginning of the interview, we're, we're British. We don't know that much about American sports, you know, mm. but these games have so many elements in them that are relevant to other games as well and uh, are relevant to video game development. So you've got, you know, stuff like the first stadiums being introduced, which all had, you know, different customizations. You've got like stats and updated rosters and stuff. And it's it's just a really interesting interview kind of talking about EA's attitude towards the games. Trip Hawkins was a fan as well and stuff like they even had an EA softball team. Mm. Yeah, I found it really insightful. You know, I, I don't want listeners to just kind of write it off if you're not into sports or if you're not into, you know, John Madden or anything like that or baseball games because of um, a lot of it, it, it. I don't want to spoil it, but a lot of it can be related to like kind of like RPG stats and stuff like that. And I found that so insightful that, you know, you would have to consider so many different aspects on games that were coming out on the Mega Drive Genesis, you know, and coming out on, you know, on the Nintendo. And I think there was one on the Apple too we discussed as well. Um, that they had to they had to really think about and kind of hearing happy and how he programmed that and developed that is really really fun yeah and i imagine you know the amount of consoles that games like madden and that must have sold you know the amount of genesis's or mega drives especially in that era you know that the early to mid 90s it must have shifted a hell of a lot of systems yeah, oh, yeah definitely and like even happy tells us you know he was he was working on deluxe paint as well um deluxe mm. paint 2 and the amiga as well so there was a lot of Amiga titles as well, and it was that kind of balance between the computers and the consoles, you know, which one's going to sell better and which one's going to take, you know, sports games. Yeah, so uh, if you're a big fan of those EA sports games and uh, hearing about the industry in general around that time, it's going to be a really interesting chat. Our special guest, Happy Keller, coming up on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, let's jump straight into the news stories this week, then some really big ones to get through. Uh, been a busy week for news, actually, including something that I, I know has been rumoured for many years. And in my mind, it makes logical sense that this should happen one day. But it turns out, actually, in the early 2000s, we came quite close to getting a Grand Theft Auto movie that could have starred Eminem. Do you think it would have been as good as 8 Mile? I don't know about as good as 8 Mile, but maybe as popular as 8 Mile. Because interestingly, it was kind of pitched right after 8 Mile. Not after 8 Mile came out, but after it kind of wrapped and the development was done on it. 
you know, that was when it was kind of pitched to the creators of GTA. And, you know, this the story behind it's really interesting, isn't it, Dan? Yeah, so bizarrely, I mean, it, it turns out that they were talking about doing a Grand Theft Auto movie. Mm. And uh, this is, you know, Rockstar founders Sam and Dan Hauser. Apparently a Hollywood agent came to them in 2001. So you think 2001, just after GTA 3 yeah. had come out. And that was, you know, a big game changer in the franchise, wasn't it? You know, the one that I remember most people getting really into GTA around then on the PS2 and the original Xbox and the PC as well, of course. And Eminem, he had a big year in 2001, still flying high off the back of the Marshall Mathers LP, and still my favourite Eminem album ever. Um, obviously, 8 Mile had just wrapped, like you mentioned. So apparently they were um, approached by this, someone from Hollywood, an agent, who came to them offering to make a GTA movie. And they were considering it for a while. And apparently they got a phone call at four o'clock in the morning by this LA producer. And... They reckon that they've arranged it for, for Eminem to star in the movie, and it was going to be a Tony Scott movie, and ask them if they're interested. So they had a bit of a think about it and decided, actually, no, we don't want to do it. And apparently that's the last time they ever talked about Grand Theft Auto coming to the silver screen. So it is quite bizarre. I mean, you think about that time, I mean, Eminem is still a big star now, but back then, really at his peak. Yeah. And the fact that the they had a lot of confidence, I think, and a lot of faith in the game doing well to kind of turn that well, opportunity also, down. Also, like, video game movies weren't amazingly good back then. Um, yeah. You know, uh, one that I could think that was close to this would be Postal, the movie, uh, which didn't go down well at all. But um, Kirk Irwin, um, he, he was the guy that's actually been talking about this on a, on a podcast. And, uh, you know, he created State of Emergency, which is a wicked game if you've ever played that. Mm. Uh, really, really interesting one. I, I was wondering about this. If there was elements in this of GTA, would he have done the GTA rap that was in the original one? Um, you know, <laughs> that that would have been wicked. And uh, yeah, I, I, th I think it could have been all right. But, you know, it probably would have been better than the BBC documentary with uh, Daniel Radcliffe. Oh, yeah. Um, which notoriously annoyed Rockstar so much that they stopped doing any press interviews afterwards. Mm. Didn't they try and sue them or something? I remember it was so inaccurate. I think so, it? yeah, yeah. They, they they were not fans of that one at all, and that was like a mini kind of movie, but a full Hollywood release would have been good. But also, to be honest, I think Vice City, for me, would have been a better film. Like, yeah. you know, that 80s kind of Miami Vice style. You had, like, Danny Dyer in there. Like, <laughs> it could have been pretty good. Well, this is on a podcast called the um, the Bugsy Malone's Grandest Game podcast. Um, and there's an article on BBC News that I'll link up in the show notes. And they talk about, you know, quite an interesting fact that, you know, Grand Theft Auto obviously is now such a massive... I mean, it's actually the, the biggest entertainment product of all time. You know, outselling even the mentioned movies like Avatar, you know, GTA V outsold that massively. So really it makes you think that you know, in my mind, often you think, oh, movies are like a bigger industry than gaming, but they're not anymore. I think, you know, for Grand Theft Auto to come out on the big screen or a home release as a movie, it will be smaller than the games. Yeah, it's 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 weird to think if this had happened as well, would we live in a world where it killed the franchise, you know, and Vice City never came out or, you know, we never got, you know, San Andreas or anything like that. We just don't know. Like, I just feel like, you know, it would have been Eminem. And then, like, maybe Justin Timberlake or something well, like that. I, I just think, how how would have it worked? Because, like, movies like that, you know, there's Falling Down with Michael Douglas, which is essentially GTA, oh, the love movie. That movie. Yeah. Mm. Um, like, how would they make it original? 
you know that that's what i wonder it, it'd yeah. be tough to make it that you you know love the character like i guess they'd have to try and really make him relatable or whatever or there's a reason behind he's doing it like you know his sister's ill or something like that was it tommy it was tommy Vassetti in uh gta3 wasn't it yeah it was yeah yeah so you'd have to kind of do the tommy Vassetti story which i don't think was as strong as vice city i I don't think they would i think they would have made it an original i think they would i think they would have made it quite far removed from the actual games and they would have given like a real good guy motive to eminem like he's doing it for his sister who's dying or who needs her drugs, you know, like her medicine or something like that. It's just a mile. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, probably just eight mile. <laughs> probably for the best that it didn't happen. I mean, I love eight mile, but yeah, I couldn't imagine sticking a, a, a GTA tag on there. Because obviously you'd have to do some rapping as well, wouldn't he? Especially on that side. Um, so, yeah, what well, could have been. But if you want to read more about that, I'll link that story up and uh, the rest of them in our show notes on your podcast app or at theretrohour.com. Now, if you're trying to stay secure in the world on uh, most platforms, I I use two-factor authentication. Um, Actually, I use it probably a bit too much because uh, I've locked myself out of my Facebook account recently. It is uh, one of the the big platforms that encourages you to turn it on. And then if you, like I did, you know, lose your phone or get a new one, and there's no way of recovering it and getting back into your account, unfortunately. Most services are a bit more sensible than that and let you uh, find a way in, though. But if you get a bit bored of using a little key, to do your two-factor codes or maybe you've got an app on your phone and you think, oh, that's not very exciting, is it? Someone's actually found a way to generate two-factor authentication codes using a Commodore SX64. Yeah, this is this is a bit mental. Like, I don't know why he's used the SX64 as well. I'm sure you could just do it on the C64. Well, you can take this with you with your, with your phone, I guess. You, know, <laughs> yeah. if you need to get into things Crush like your phone. Crush your phone to bits. Um yeah, it it does look interesting. Like I, I also think the whole thing about two factor is that you need to link it with a QR code. So I'm not quite sure how it would actually link up with something. Maybe you'd have to have um something custom based on this algorithm. But um what he's done is he's basically managed to put um cryptographic routines in there and um they they re- refresh uh with the timing. But um He's had a few problems as well because of the clock that's in the C64. You know, the time um, getting that to communicate with this algorithm. He's he's had to do a lot of programming and, uh, you know, it's on Unix time as well, which is uh, requires some conversion. Um, it, it's an interesting concept. This is using your retro gear to off- authenticate. I don't know. Does it feel more insecure just that you've got it on a CRT? I guess, you know, it's probably quite a simple algorithm. And they do mention in this article on Hackaday that even using a 1 megahertz 6510 CPU, it's um, it's not that taxing on the CPU itself. Because the thing about when you do a two-factor code, you generally only get about 20, 30 seconds to put it in yeah. before a new one's generated. And actually, if you look on the, the screen display here, there is a little uh, progress bar. So it does count down. So it, it is quick enough to generate a new one every 30 seconds which I think is, um, you know, apparently some tight assembly code has um, made it possible for the 6510 to do that in a reasonable amount of time. So, um, yeah, I do think it's it's an interesting concept. Again, completely pointless, and you're not going to, you know, if you've ever seen a, an SX64, it was kind of a, well, not even a laptop version of the common, it was a luggable. Carry case, they called it, didn't they? Yeah. Carry so, computer, I mean, it, it, that was it. You might have seen that famous advert of a, a guy, <laughs> it was when the... Uh, 
the SX-64 launched of a guy around the swimming pool, you know, an 80s yuppie using one with a, a martini in his hand or something. So, um, yeah, again, like a lot of stuff we talk about on this podcast, he's done it just because he can. Yeah. It is completely pointless. And I, I cool. think it's kind of better than, you know, these people that were running like Bitcoin miners on their Game Boys and stuff. At least it's got a little bit of use. And uh, yeah, I think this is cool if you could get it on a C64 or something. But um, yeah, I'll, I'll be sticking to my apps. Someone's made a good point in the uh, the article comments here as well that, you know, obviously the batteries in the SX64 are going to be approaching 40 years old now. Will the battery charge actually hold long enough to, for the uh, the 30 seconds that you get to put it in your phone? Yeah, and I, and I so. guess the clock's also <laughs> kept on a battery as well, isn't it? So I don't think there's no real-time clock in there. I don't think you have to get an add-on for it. So, oh, okay. Um, yeah, so it's uh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of things could go wrong, but very cool that someone's got that up and running. Now, speaking of impressive things from back in the day, I mean, Elite on the BBC Micro, we talked to so many people, you know, that would regard Elite as one of the top 10 games of all time. A lot of developers that we've had on. We haven't had David Braben on yet, but, you know, we have tried and we will keep trying. Hopefully we'll get him on one day. Uh, but obviously it is a groundbreaking game when it came out. The fact that you could have an entire universe in a video game. And now, if you've ever wanted to make your own universes in the BBC Micro version of Elite, someone's just released an editor that lets you do just that. Yeah, this is really cool. Um, this is a universe editor. You can totally customize stuff in that. And it's also cross compatible as well. So it will work with the C64 uh, version oh, nice. once you've kind of made it. Um, you know, you can um, place your own ships, planets, uh, suns and space stations in this kind of like local bubble. And um, yeah, it, it does look really interesting. Also, you can explore uh, using the seeds as well. So you have these seeds which are basically like different galaxies and um there's absolutely millions of them <laughs> that this engine supports because the way that elite worked was it it would generate these galaxies and um you know it's an absolutely huge game for for kind of you know such a small system yeah i mean it, it's always amazed me even when frontier elite 2 came out the fact that that could hold an entire universe on a you know 720k floppy disk always blew my mind but the fact that it could fit into like what 32k i think the bbc micro was which is just nuts and i think it's really cool that people love this game enough to do this kind of thing because obviously it was someone you imagine played this back in the day always wished that they could create their own worlds in there but now all these years later 40 years on they've actually made it a reality and i know they have been like i was reading about another modification to elite because um i think it was the the commodore 64 version had a bit of screen flicker or something and someone actually did a mod recently to fix that as well so oh, cool. you know the fact that people love it that much that they're still making things for it all these years later um and actually having your own little universe in there i mean what i think is really cool is you can actually play this in the browser there's a link that i'll put in the show notes where you can actually check out the universe editor directly from your web browser in an online bbc micro emulator um but they're saying here that you could actually make your own universes save them and then maybe upload them to the web other people can explore them as well so you're kind of getting to something a bit like you know <laughs> mario maker but with the universe is in elite which i think is pretty yeah yeah you're getting this base of like user created content that can go in there that's pretty cool yeah and the fact that you know elite itself could run in like 32 or 64k i think it's amazing the fact that they can squeeze an editor 
into the memory at the same time of it. You know, that is uh, that is just absolutely mind-blowing. So if you want to check that out, it is available now, and I'll put it in our show notes. Now, we're going to talk about this um, new Dragon's Lair movie that was rumoured a couple of years ago, but we've got a big new update on that to tell you about in just a minute. We do have some news. And our special guest, Happy Keller, coming up on the show in just a sec. But just a quick reminder... That, you know, we do this podcast every single Friday and, uh, you know, it's amazing that we've done this for over seven years, you know, just a couple of years off a decade of bringing you this show each and every Friday. But the only way we can do it is uh, thanks to the amazing community that surrounds this podcast. It keeps us going, helps us keep the lights on as well with our incredible Patreon community. Now, we've got some wonderful people in there, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. It, it means the world to us that people continue to back us and, and continue to sign up. And it, it comes down to, once again, like we said at the start of the show, we are beyond thankful and we don't we don't want to take that for granted. Um, and we really, really, really are grateful to everybody who supports us at the moment, you know, past and present and future. Yeah, 100%. And we do a, a patrons hangout every month as well. That'll be coming up next Sunday. So if you'd like to join us for that and at loads of extras as well, you can check them all out on our patron page. We'll uh, link it up in our show notes and on our website at theretrohour.com. And of course, when we get new patrons, we induct them into the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro. And that is the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame. <laughs> and let's give a massive thank you to our latest supporters. Thank you so much to Flod. Retro fun for everyone. Chris Nichols. And Robert Polding, who all joined us on Patreon this week. We hugely appreciate your support. And if you'd like to get yourself in the Hall of Fame and join the Retro Hour patrons community, all the details are at theretrohour.com. Right then, before we chat to this week's special guest, Happy Keller, uh, a couple more news stories to quickly go through. Now, you remembered us talking about this joke. So it kind of stuck in my mind a little bit, but I wasn't sure whether it had been announced that he was doing it. But... We heard this rumour about two years ago that Ryan Reynolds was going to be starring in a Dragon's Lair movie. Yeah, so there was a rumour flying around in 2020 uh, that this was happening, but it's now been confirmed by Ryan Reynolds himself. Um, he's currently doing like the rounds, you know, the, uh, the media rounds for a film he's got coming out called Spirited, which is a Christmas film that comes out, I think, this week or next week. Well, while he's been doing the media rounds, he's been asked uh, about the Dragon Layer, Dragon's Lair partnership and he's essentially revealed that his production company have been developing it since early 2020 alongside netflix so i think his yeah. production company is called maximum effort and they've been working closely with netflix uh, to make a dragon's layer film now what's really interesting about it and a lot of people seem to be talking about essentially how he's described the film and the approach towards the film and how kind of like netflix are approaching the film and what they want to what they want to do with it so he says it intersects in a unique way with technology that's never been privy to the entertainment industry before. Or it's been done before, but it's never been done on this level before. So when I read that, my mind straight away went to Bandersnatch Black Mirror. Which Mine would... just went to uh, Chris Pratt when he said, you're going to have a Mario voice <laughs> that you've never experienced before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then he just sounds like Chris Pratt. Um, so yeah. I mean, uh, my mind went straight away into that, but you continue reading the articles and all the articles are referring to Bandersnatch as well. I feel like Bandersnatch was huge though. Like, I feel like that was really, really big for Netflix. Um, and obviously yeah. he's saying it's not something that they've done this big before. So who knows? He could be talking about something completely different. You know what I'm thinking? Because 
Bandersnatch was obviously you you had the text at the bottom, didn't you? And yeah. then it kind of went through a different like a choose your own adventure, really. Yeah. But Dragon's Lair, I mean, I don't know if you guys have played Dragon's Lair. Yeah. Um I've I've played it a few times. I'm not a big fan of the game, if I'm honest. It's uh beautiful graphics, um, but it's quite a boring game. It's all just kind of oh, damn. today. People are gonna hate on but you now. It, it's basically quick time events, yeah. you know, it's gotta click a button at the right time. But maybe they could do something like that. I mean, if they kind of had a a playable video game, you know, kind of of Dragon's Lair, but real life actors like you know, like an FMV game, I guess. That could be something that maybe Well, have you played Triviaverse? No. Which is no. the new Netflix interactive one. Um I was playing it last week and that's very like up, down, left, right. Um right. you've got to choose for your options and it's a lot faster than Bandus Bandersnatch was. Um uh they've really like locked down that kind of software that they've got on Netflix to to kind of play these games. But I was playing it and each level you have to get faster and faster and faster to <laughs> to like unlock some points. So, you know, um, getting that kind of association with your mind and pressing it on the remote really quickly actually does work. You know, once I got through a few levels, I was I was pretty quick at it. So uh, check that out, Triviaverse as well. And this might be a foretelling thing that's going on. But um, Ryan Reynolds as well, I can't stand him. He's on everything, isn't he? And uh, But to be fair, I, I think he's got the right kind of look to play Dirk, you know, from, yeah, from I guess. Dragon's Lair. He I looks guess. a bit like him, doesn't he, actually, yeah, in his yeah. face? So, I mean, it could. I, I imagine, like you said, Ravi, they've, they've got this technology that they've been working on and improving. And I think should be Nick it, Cage. When I heard the, <laughs> That's it, yeah, Nick be. Cage would work as well, I guess. <laughs> yeah, he would work um, actually. <laughs> He'd do it. But I think you know, <laughs> <yeah>, probably. <laughs> but when I, when I heard that this was going to be a thing a couple of years ago, I was a bit like, really, Dragon's Lair? That's kind of a you know, I don't think there's been a Dragon's Lair game since the mid '90s. It feels like it's a long dead kind of franchise. But it would make sense if you know. Imagine if Ryan's actually producing it as well he's probably a fan of the game i guess so it, yeah. it would make sense yeah it's a kind of game that could lend itself kind of gamify a film in that mm. in that way yeah yeah so it's, it's been confirmed it is happening and in development now so um we'll we'll keep you up to date on that now just one more story to quickly hop into i know you love your retro thrillers you know these kind of resident evil style games joe and there is yeah, another one. Now, I've got to say, this one looks really cool. It's a game called uh, Broken Pieces. Yeah, man, this uh, this looks cool. This it, it's it's definitely got the modern look to it. You know, usually when I talk about these kind of like retro modern games, they they look retro. This this is a modern game, admittedly, but it it but it plays like a nineties retro survival horror, early two thousands survival horror with the fixed cameras. You know, and kind of like the survival horror with your with your guns and, you know, the kind of monstrous enemies that you're fighting. Um, so this came out last week at the point of recording. So it has been out for a week and it's been getting some really good reviews, lots of sevens and eights out of tens. Um, I'm really excited to go give it a download after we've been recording this um, because I didn't realise it was already out. And it's coming out on pretty much every platform, you know, Xbox, PlayStation uh, and PC. I don't think there's a Switch release at the moment. I don't want to compare it to Resident Evil, but it's a little bit more like Parasite Eve. And there's some cool mechanics in there, you know, where you've kind of got, a, you can't just go blasting and you can't, you don't just point and aim and shoot and, you know, you shoot. You've got a kind of time you're fighting, like you have an amulet in the game, which you can use to push the monsters back. The monsters, I say monsters, they're kind of like people who, I can't describe it. When when they attack you, they like pixelate the graphics and have like big arms and stuff that come out of them. It's, it's a really... <laughs> that sounds freaky. It is quite freaky and it's quite a visual game which is always difficult on a podcast to describe. So 
implore you to go check out a review or a trailer of it. I, I guess it's got the mechanics where, like, you know, Last of Us, you can kind of decide to go in there and, like, yeah. you know, do it stealthy or do what I do, which is run in, blast everything, then ruin <laughs> yeah. the level. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah there's, there's probably going to be that element of it. It's quite puzzle-heavy um, from what I'm reading. It's got a lot of those old-school puzzles in it, which maybe The Last of Us is, is missing a little bit of. Um, so it's got a lot of those old, old school go collect the key and then you know go collect this and you've got to then do these dials on this machine and stuff like that it's got a lot of that in it um, and it's set um, just after the Cold War I want to say it's set in Serbia so it looks very cold and dark and you know scary um, but it's quite well lit and graphically it looks very nice um, but what's cool about it um, is it is actually the studio who's made its first ever game hmm. it's the first game they've ever put out um, so a big congratulations to them with the good reviews. And, you know, it, it, it looks like a stunning game. But like I say, it, it's it's a modern game with modern graphics, but it's that fixed camera. And they were saying, you know, when they were developing this game and they were kind of trying to market the games to publishers to get it put it out, all the publishers were saying, we played the game. We really enjoyed it. We enjoyed the gameplay. We enjoyed the puzzles. We enjoyed the gunplay. But that fixed camera is too archaic. That's not something we that people have seen in 15, 20 years and they were very, that's the point. That's the point of that, of this game. It's, you know. But does it have tank controls? Uh, it doesn't have tank controls by the looks of things. Phew. Um, so, <laughs> I hate tank yeah. controls. So maybe a little bit more playable for the likes of myself and Dan. Um, but yeah, they, they were kind of like, not saying that people were missing the point, that the, you know, publishers were missing the point, but more just publishers were, I think, were worried that people wouldn't want to play a fixed camera game in 2022. Um, mm. But, you know, hats off and props to them for putting it out, getting it developed and, you know, getting it produced. Um, and it's there for download um, as we speak. Yeah, so it looks really cool. It's called Broken Pieces. If you want to check that out, that will be in our show notes and all the rest of the stories. You don't have to Google around. I'll save you the job of doing that. You'll find them in our show notes. And of course, on our website at theretrohour.com. Now, just before we hop into our chat with this week's special guest, Happy Keller, going inside those classic EA games coming up in just a second. Before we do that, let's take a moment just to give a massive thank you to this week's sponsor. And this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, I think we often all feel like this, don't we? Sometimes we wish that life came with a, a user manual. You know, because obviously we're all trying to figure stuff out and we know the way the world is at the moment. I think sometimes we all need a bit of a helping hand. Oh, God, absolutely. You know, that's something... I've struggled with, you know, in my adult life is, you know, reaching out to people for help and, you know, kind of sitting there and trying to figure it out for yourself. And like you say, like when you buy a car or why when you buy a new games console, it will come with instructions or a user manual on how to set it up or how to potentially fix a problem. But we we don't have that as humans, whether that's, you know, in our physical health or in our mental health, which is what we're talking about now. And basically mm. better help online therapy can be the next best thing. Yeah, absolutely. So if you've got challenges in life and sometimes we just come a bit stuck, you know, mm. you need a bit of a helping hand. Well, they are the world's largest therapy service and BetterHelp, they've matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists who are available 100% online. Now, the thing about therapy is a lot of people think that it's very expensive, but this is so affordable. Now, all you do 
you head onto their website, and of course, we'll give you a code so you get a big discount on this as well. Just fill out a brief questionnaire, and they will match you with a therapist. And if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. Honestly, it couldn't be simpler. So there's no waiting rooms, no traffic that you've got to go in, no endless searching for the right therapist. And you can learn more and save 10% on your first month. Just go to this website right now, betterhelp.com slash retro. And that is betterhelp.com. H-E-L-P dot com slash retro and get started today. And a big thank you to our friends at BetterHelp for their support of our show. Right, then next on the show, we're going to go inside the world of EA's classic sports games with our special guest, Happy Keller, and he's next on the Retro Hour podcast. Okay, you're listening to the Retro Hour, and we're joined today by Happy Keller from EA. And uh, just before we start this podcast, I'm going to mention, you know, we, we don't really know American uh, football and uh, baseball and stuff, but we know video games. So this is going to be a wicked conversation about that. And uh, we have a question, Happy, that we always ask our guests first. And okay. That was, that was uh, what was your first video game experience that you remember? Gosh, well, honestly, uh, um, coin op or home, uh, either, either or, or yeah. Yeah, well, then, then the first one would have to be, uh, Pong. Uh, I was, uh, one of those, uh, people that grew up when, uh, Atari was, uh, created and, uh, Pong was the very first, uh, video game that I ever played. And I, so, I so was, you- I was, I was taken by that immediately and and that's probably be because uh earlier in my childhood i was uh i was uh taken in by uh pinball machines and things like mm. that my first computers would be the uh atari 800 and then the uh, commodore 64 and also the apple II. i mean all those kind of uh came in at about the same time because uh I came in through the uh, the side door, you know, I, I was into that first generation of video games, the Atari 2600 and television, yeah. all, all of those uh, machines. And uh, my roommate at the time uh, got a job at Apple oh, and yeah. they had a, a, a program at the time that uh, allowed a, a demo unit to go home. So the demo unit came home and I immediately became uh, interested in that. So then I started shopping for software and uh, found in a uh, ziplocked plastic bag found uh, Ultima. <laughs> All right. Oh, yes. What, what would now be called Ultima 1, but yeah. it was just Ultima then and uh, became uh, quite uh, attached to that game. And uh, my friend, also became attached to that game to the point where we had to, uh, we set out a uh, kitchen timer, an hour timer to uh, play the game. So everybody right. would come over and uh, when the timer went off, then it was uh, the next person's uh, uh, chance to play with their character in Ultima. We were all uh, D&D nerds already. So uh, it, this was the next logical extension. Mm. So you were obviously self-confessed D&D nerd there. I was going to ask, you know, getting really involved into Ultima there. Did you have much of a high school sports background then? Um, Because obviously a lot of your career was in sporting games. 
Well, I, uh, I took the, uh, statistics for the uh, varsity football team for a year and I uh, ran cross country and ran track and Mm. played tennis and uh, I consider myself a participant athlete and not a jock. Yeah. I've always been a huge sports fan, but uh, never a, a high level sports player all although i did play college tennis so i i guess i, I got good enough at tennis to play at the low very low level college level of tennis yeah. i went over to america and i was really surprised at how serious um high school football was taken you know um i was in atlanta and they were using the falcon stadium to have this huge uh you know high school football match and everyone seemed really into it and stuff it's a total kind of different culture to ours yes yeah very very much so i mean it, in different areas of the country uh high school football is taken very seriously in uh texas is the most uh serious area i've ever found that they take high school football very very seriously there well you uh worked in a video game store at one point as well I was wondering if that kind of helped you get a a, a wider knowledge of titles that were out at the time and uh, access to more games. Absolutely. Absolutely. When we weren't uh, selling, we were playing. So, I mean, uh, that was was a great time. Uh, The video adventure in the now defunct, uh, or located in the now defunct uh, town and country village uh, mall in uh, San Jose, California was a, a great place to uh where i hung out with uh some very great people uh like uh sue manley and uh, uh jay stevens the late jay stevens who worked at the uh, hessware which was a uh a commodore uh game uh software firm back back then and uh yeah we played we played just about everything and uh when I wasn't working at that time, just to show how, you know, time progresses at that time, the, uh, the game that I was playing most in the, in the store was, uh, Ultima three. So, <laughs> so we, we had gone from, uh, Ultima one on the Apple to, uh, Ultima three on the, uh, on the Atari 800. And had the, uh, packaging improved by then. Yeah. 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 And this, this was actually in a box. It had a uh, uh, a cloth map. I, that was the first. Uh, well, no, maybe Ultimate Two was the first one that had a cloth map with it. But uh, yeah, that was uh, that was a lot of fun back in the day. And unfortunately, the uh, the owners of that store weren't too uh, great with the finances, and so the store closed. And uh, that was unfortunate. But uh, I. Uh, Actually, uh, uh, continued with entertainment a little bit uh, to uh, become a, a supervisor at, at the uh, local uh, Bullwinkle's Family Food and Fun mm. uh, restaurant, which had a very large arcade in it. Oh, yeah. So, still gaming. And uh, they also had an audio animatronic show uh, mm. with the. Uh, Bullwinkle Moose and Rocky Squirrel and Dudley Do-Right and those characters, J. Ward characters. And uh, that was a lot of fun. And uh, I did that until I uh, I got hit by a car. 
<laughs> oh dear. Oh. So with, with that in mind, how do you transition into your, your job at EA then? So what's the story there? So you've been hit by a car um, and then the next well, thing that- we've got is that you work for EA. So what's, what's the story there? Well, actually, that's the, that is uh, part of the transition. I, I was uh, riding my bicycle, and a guy thought a stop sign was a suggestion, <laughs> and he ran me down in the middle of the intersection uh, with his car, and I did a two-and-a-half gainer into the pavement. And uh, one of the few things that I remembered after that was uh, him pointing at me and telling me that the accident was my fault. So I, I was laid up for the better part of a year after that. And uh, during that time, I played a lot of computer games. And one of the games that I was interested in was uh, Ultima 4, uh, which was due to come out. And uh, I uh, called the number to place my order for Ultima 4 and uh, was told that uh, it would be, uh, they would ship in three to five business days and so anyway, I ordered Ultima 4 and it didn't come. And I mm-hmm. called the complaint and it didn't come again. I called the complaint and it didn't come again. And I called the complaint and it finally came. And um, I, I knew that at that time that Electronic Arts was doing uh, origin systems distribution at that time. And I was tired of the runaround that I had gotten at the uh, distribution phone number. So I decided that I was going to call... I was going to call Electronic Arts Corporate directly and mm. uh, complain about their fulfillment department and, or their, their mail order department. And um, they were very, very apologetic. And uh, they said, oh, well, we really want to take care of this. And give me your phone number. We'll have someone call you back. And uh, I did. And someone indeed called me back, and which I really didn't expect. And uh the person I talked to uh, said that uh, uh, this was a, an out-of-house uh, mail-order uh, company and they weren't satisfied with them either and that they were going to be taking that function in-house uh, in the very uh, near future. And I facetiously asked them if they were hiring and uh, uh, they said yes. And I... I uh, quickly put together a, uh, a resume on my uh, dot matrix uh, printer and uh, <laughs> mailed it to them. And uh, I, I uh, or well, no, actually, I, I drove it up to them because I, I, I had an interview and uh, handed it in. And I got hired that day into Electronic Arts mail order department, uh, which was called Fulfillment back in that time. And just so lucky to be there. I mean, I, I, uh, there were only, I was employee number 53 and, uh, we were in a very, uh, small part of a building. And that was, uh, my first, uh, a realization was, uh, based on EA's marketing. And I, I had always thought that they were a, uh, reasonably large company. And when I got in there and, uh, spoke with them and interviewed with them and got hired, I realized that they were a pretty small little company, and uh, but with uh, very, very passionate people, and uh, that made all the difference in the world. The, the passion and the energy that was within those walls was, uh, I had never experienced anything like that before, and uh, 
and it would continue for uh, several years. Well, you started working on a Deluxe Paint 2 for the Amiga, and I was wondering how important were those tools like for games development uh, within EA? Very, very important. Uh, those tools were um, part of the uh, artist workstation, uh, which allowed uh, people working on their uh, PCs to uh, download their code into their target machine, be it the Amiga or something else, and uh, run their code there. So we had a uh, the technicians at uh, EA were trying to wring every... Uh, every last ounce of energy out of our own internal tools, plus those that we could find out there in the market to make uh, the best uh, games. But uh, yeah, Deluxe Paint, working on Deluxe Paint was a uh, great teacher to me because I, I realized not very long after beginning to work on it that uh, I knew the futility of what I was doing because I knew that I could test 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for the rest of my life, and I would never use every feature in combination with every other feature. And uh, therefore, the, the uh, a dream of putting out something, a, a piece of software that was bug-free, that was actually placed beside. Because I, I realized then that uh, no matter how hard we all worked, that uh, whatever we worked on was going to go out there into the world with bugs. Well, EA had uh, kind of committed to the Amiga really early on. And, yes. Um, it, it was really interesting because it it was a kind of hobbyist system at the time and it, it blew up a lot later on in Europe and other places like that. But do you think that early contribution from EA really helped the Amiga? I'm sure that it helped the Amiga, but I would say that the commitment to the Amiga uh, was key to electronic arts success in the way that things turned out in the video game market because the um, the Amiga was based on the 68000 chip and the Sega Genesis was also based on the 68000 chip. So by the time the Genesis came around and we reverse engineered the Genesis, we'd already had tons and tons of experience with that chip and knew how to make it do things and already had an artist workstation that would allow us to uh, download code into a 68,000 based environment. So uh, I would say that uh, that bet on the Amiga, um, although sadly it didn't pay off in the near term, uh, long term for uh, for for EA, it paid off uh, greatly. So EA really pushed the aspect of game art and packaging. Do you think this helped them stand out from the competition, and you know, really help the company grow? I I think so. I think that uh, yeah, the wonderful packaging that was put together, and uh, back uh, when the company was launched, the uh, the uh, album type covers that they uh, mm. that they had come up with were. were uh, really intriguing and uh i was still at the video adventure back in the day and uh, had seen their early ads and my uh manager and i sue manley we uh we decided we were going to take a flyer on this young company and and we ordered their software and and had great success selling their software and of course those album covers were great until 
uh, home computers started to become more of a normal uh, occurrence than you'd find in uh, software stores that the uh, boxes were spined out and that the EA album covers, rather than being shown face forward, were now shown by their spines, which were very, very narrow. And so it became mm. a disadvantage. So mm. there was a, uh, yeah, internally, there was a huge, well, what do we do? What do we do now? We've got to change our packaging because yeah. with the spines out, people can't hardly find our stuff. So so what did they do? Was that when they kind of changed the big, the big, the the boxes. Kind of big box stuff? Yeah. 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 Changed to boxes cool. and uh, yeah. And big boxes. And uh, uh, yeah, the, if you remember like the deluxe paint box was mm. uh it had a little three and a half inch disc in it and a, a 65 <laughs> annual, but it had a big, thick, about an inch and a half thick uh, box. Yeah. Uh, there was yeah. three and a half inch tall. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. So uh, EA and Origin had a really good relationship. Do you think this was due to EA self-distributing? Uh, it was because of, uh, well, Origin, Origin wanted to, uh, well, I guess they just, they saw EA as just kind of their distribution wing, mm. and uh, and uh, uh, Electronic Arts had the best uh, distribution company in software going at that time uh, because they they made a decision back when they were founded that they were they weren't going to go through distributors that they were going to distribute themselves which was, again, a very novel concept at the time and allowed them to have direct contact with the dealers of electronic arts software. And uh, so they could see what was selling, what wasn't selling of ours and everybody else's. And, and uh, that news got back to the publishing end, of course. And then we'd use that to decide where we might go with the next uh, games. So Origin was, uh, was uh, distributed by EA and then, of course, purchased by EA. Nice. And then, yeah. unfo- unfortunately, they suffered the same fate as so many others would uh, later <laughs> suffer after being purchased by Electronic Arts. So um, our next question is, uh, Skate or Die was the first internally developed EA game. What did you think of the skate of the you know all die series, and did it open up the idea of doing more sports titles? I don't know so much as sports, but I mean it was a it was a huge struggle to get those guys. Um, we had a, a, a he was marketing at the time, but became a producer, executive producer, vice president later. Don Traeger, who saw the writing on the wall that you know skateboarding was going to become big, and. Uh, he came to all the production teams and he said, come on, you got to find somebody to do a skateboarding game for us. Mm. And the producers all went to their, their individual artists and artist groups and couldn't find anybody that was, uh, was uh, interested in doing a skateboard game. So then the, the thought became that uh, we would uh, hire an internal development uh, team to do that. And uh, Tripp's initial uh, thought was well, if anybody was going to be you know, on an internal development team, it was going to be me, you know. Yeah. And, and uh, 
So there were a lot of struggles to get that done, but it did. Yeah. And, and uh, Michael Kasaka, David Bunch, and Steve Landrum came in and uh, with the great assist of Rob Hubbard came in and created Skate or Die. And uh, it was, um, it changed things for us because not only did, uh, it was it was a successful title for us, but it was also the first title that we licensed to be done on a uh, video game platform. Konami licensed the game yeah. to be done on the NES. Yeah, and so that was our, our uh, first uh, uh, video game title, to be sure. And uh, Rob Hubbard as well, having him on board is just amazing, amazing sound and ability to get, you know, music out of such a, a limited kind of space uh, was pretty good. Oh, he, he, he was awesome. I love, I love Rob. Rob was, was, was fun to work with and he was such a perfectionist. And he came up with such great stuff and uh, even, even got to uh, golf with Rob on uh, several uh, casual Saturdays when we were not working ourselves to the bone. Well, I was, I was wondering how you kind of went into different roles at EA then, how you kind of uh, went from, you know, working with, with the distributors then going into, into higher levels and uh, getting into you know, games production and games design. Oh, well, uh, yeah, I was working in, uh, in uh, fulfillment in mail order and, and um, I was invited to a, a play test session for a, uh, a game that uh, uh, Dan Bunton, Dan slash Danny Bunton was doing uh, without Ozark Softscape called, uh, uh, well, at that time, I, I don't remember what it was called, but uh, it, it was a, a family game. And um, I got to uh, go in for an internal focus group for it. And uh, during that session, he asked, you know, well, what would you do differently here or there? And I'd suggest something. And uh, he explained why, according to technical reasons or rules reasons why he couldn't do what I was suggesting. And I went and thought about that for a couple of minutes. And then I came back with a very similar suggestion that lived within those rules that he could implement. And his producer at the time uh, thought that this was a, a very usable talent and so he recruited me to become an assistant producer on his team, working on what Dan's game would become, Robot Rascal, and uh, working within uh, the production system of EA. And so that was that was how I got out of the out of the mailroom and into uh, game production. Was that uh, play testing session? So you've done Skate or Die. And you know, Trip put you on the on the development team, says you've got to be on here. What was Trip's attitude towards sports games at this point? Then was he seeing that as like EA's future? Did he enjoy sports games? Oh well, Trip. I I mean, you got to understand at that time before Skater Die was even uh, done, he'd already 
he, uh, many moons ago, about the time that the company was formed, he signed John Madden to do oh, John wow. Madden yeah. football. Mm. And, and, and not too long after that, uh, uh, had signed uh, uh, about the time that the uh, Amiga came into being, he signed Earl Weaver for Earl Weaver baseball. Mm. So, I mean, way, way, way back then, before uh, Skate or Die, there were already sports games going on, and, and uh, Richard Hilleman had already made a deal with uh, Ferrari to do uh, Ferrari Formula One on the Amiga. So, yeah, I mean, there were already sports fans. I mean, uh, Richard and, and uh, Bing Gordon, the head of marketing, they played hockey. And uh, uh, Tripp was uh, the uh, pitcher on our uh, Electronic Arts co-ed uh, slow pitch softball team <laughs> in the er in the early days. So that was uh, that was uh, quite a bit of uh, fun and uh, pressure. Yeah. Well, um, mentioning John Madden there as well, like he was famously really involved with the titles. You know, he he really got in there as well as um, uh, Bill Walsh, who you work with. Um, yes. What was it like, kind of working with those guys, and what were the input like by the time i actually got to work with john madden directly he already had a uh, a very good he finally had a very good working relationship with uh, those within electronic guards because uh, for years there unfortunately we were uh, working on a game and working on a game and working on a game nothing was coming out because uh, the, the very first uh, John Madden football was supposed to be on the Apple II, if you can believe that. Oh, wow. And, and, and uh, just imagine how, how difficult it would be just to get an 11-on-11 football game to run on an Apple II. And then imagine further that uh, John Madden and Tripp need to have this football game also have a completely robust play editor included within it and, and now you're talking about something that's close to impossible to do on uh, that level of hardware at that time but uh he that game finally did get that version of the game finally did get done uh, but it, it released if i remember correctly it released about the same time as the very first uh uh john madden football for the genesis and uh my my working with John uh, came in uh, 1993, 94, 95, mm. uh, same time that we signed Bill Walsh to do the uh, college football game. And working with Coach Walsh was was a joy, was an absolute joy. He, I was his first contact uh, as far as working on the game, and he was very open, and uh, he made his uh, staff at uh, Stanford University available to us if we ever had any questions. And he actually gave me uh, his uh, playbook uh, oh, wow. from one of his games, uh, one of the games that uh, he had uh, that he had put together for the previous season and answered all my questions about, you know, why he decided that he was going to attack this team's defense this way. I, I mean, it was just you know, invaluable what I learned from him, and then of course from uh, from John Madden as well. Uh, he he was uh, he was also uh, uh, a great 
great joy to work with. Although with uh, with John, I mean, so much of uh, what we were trying to get with him was not just uh, uh, football information. It was also we needed to get his voice. We needed to capture his voice, the booms, the pows, the whams, all, all of that stuff that we had to get uh, to actually uh, have uh, Rob Hubbard digitize and get into the games. <laughs> <laughs> so... um what, did you find you mentioned like obviously porting it to the Apple II or coming out on the Apple II as well? Did you find that the titles were more successful on the consoles to the computers? Because obviously by this point, you know that the Madden games they're, they're kind of like strategy games because as you say, there's so many different strategies in there, and they're really really complex games. You know, so many characters on the screen. You know, right. do you think they sold better on the computers, or do you think the consoles did really well with them? The consoles outsold the computers. Tremendously. Yeah. Okay. Just because of the installed base. And, and you also have to remember, if you went if you went and you looked at the Apple II or PC version of John Madden football, and then looked at the those early Sega Genesis versions Hello? of John Madden football, you would see market differences between the games, the passing windows that were in the console version, and there was no play editor in those early versions. There were a lot of very, very large differences between them at the time. But I mean, just mm. the huge installed base of the uh, Sega Genesis at that time, or the Mega Drive, just made that the the console or the version of choice yeah. for uh and for Madden football. And do you ever find, you know, the Genesis, did it ever struggle with it? You know, because there's so many characters on screen at once. As I say, so many strategies that can be played in that game and made. You know, was there a lot of balances that needed to be put in to make it a fun game as well? Of course. I mean, that was, uh, that was the one thing that you could always count on the internal teams and the, the people working on the games to be focusing on. It wasn't just, look what we've got, let's just put it out there again. I mean, it's like, well, what are we going to do to it this coming season that's going to be fun to do, that's going to be fun for the player to interact with? What's the next step forward for this franchise? Because we realized then that we we had something that was going to go on for a little while. And now, of course, it's uh, I can't imagine that it's ever going to stop unless electronics implodes. Or the NFL decides that they're not going to uh, give their license exclusively to EA anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Earl Weaver Baseball uh, was yes. a groundbreaking title. Um, tell us about that. Tell us the story there. How did that come about? Um, I read this was one of the first baseball games that actually had, you know, stadiums in there and absolutely massive rosters of, of players and teams. Yes, that is true. Um, Eddie Dombrower who had worked with uh, one of our uh, producers, Don Daglow, at uh, Mattel and in tele- mm. the Intellivision version of a, a, a Next Generation baseball game, came to work. Don signed Eddie, and then Tripp and Don signed Earl. And uh, so Earl Weaver Baseball was born, and uh, there, there's so much more history long time history with baseball here than football foot football has barely 
changed. I mean, you don't have differences. You have uh, cosmetic differences in stadiums, but you don't have the kind of uh, gameplay area differences that you have stadiums like you have for baseball, like the Green Monster in um, Boston or the deep left center field in the uh, older Yankee Stadium or the short porches at the polo grounds where the New York Giants used to play. That They were just, all of them were, all baseball stadiums are different in terms of their dimensions. And the baseball game was novel. And uh, Eddie's approach to the game design was also um, really novel. He didn't predetermine what was going to happen. You know, when, when the bat hit the ball, he didn't predetermine, oh, well, that's going to be a single or a double or a, a ground out or a fly out or whatever. He, in the background, decided what kind of hit, hit type the result was going to be. And, and then based on the physics of what was going on, the win and the size of the stadium and the players involved, the, the play that would play out in front of you, which was really interesting because sure, he may have rolled up a, a single, but then based upon how great your third baseman or shortstop might have been, they might cut off that ball that was supposed to be a single and it turns it into a ground out. Or uh, he, he, he might have rolled up a sacrifice fly, which is a medium deep fly ball into mm. the out. But if you were playing in one of those stadiums that had a relatively short porch in right or left field, that might that that sacrifice fly might carry far enough that it might be a home run. So you're just based upon all of these different factors, you ended up with something that was much more simulation mm. of what was going on than just gamey. Yeah. And, and of course the player rate the player ratings on top of the using the statistics and the split statistics at that time, which we had never been done before, was also very, very important to the game. And and we did an all-star game pre-play uh, for the media at that time near Oakland because yeah. the all-star was going to be played in Oakland that year. And so Earl and Eddie were the managers of the uh, American and National League teams. It was a, like a um, a one nothing game, and the press was very uh, very skeptical about what had happened on the uh, uh, in the simulation of the game. And then they they all got in their cars and they drove uh, to Oakland to watch the All Star game. And it ended up that that game was like one to nothing or two to nothing or something like that. So it was almost an exact replica of what we had done uh, mm. in our uh, play of the game, which was uh, a, a little bit gratifying. But uh, I mean, uh, the artistry, pro programming is an art form. And mm. uh, I, I just wish seeing all the, the, um, the, sadly, all the vitriol that I've seen in forums these days or even direct contacts with people that work on different uh, 
pieces of interactive entertainment. It's very sad to see all of that when these are people that, that have also poured their hearts and souls into these products to put out there for your enjoyment. And for these folks to be getting death threats and things like that is just awful. Just awful. Um, that is so. awful. Um, I, I was going to ask you around the programming, actually, you know, uh, just reflecting on what you said about obviously all the different stadium sizes and, you know, all the different player stats and stuff like that. It feels a little bit like an RPG reflecting on your experience with Ultima there. But did you, was, was that difficult to program that into like, say the Genesis um, or the Super Nintendo? Was there a lot? Because obviously there's a lot you've got to factor in there. Was, was that quite an effort for, for yourself and the programmers? Well, the, the systems that we used on the consoles were a little bit more simplified than what we used for something like Earl Weaver baseball on the, on the computers or, or Madden on the computer. The, the rating system on the Genesis and the Super Nintendo back in the day that those days was just on a, a zero to 15 level, you know, 16, 16 bits, 16 levels of, uh, yeah. Now, of course, that's opened up and they're, they're all the way up to a 99, but I mean, you still have to live within those limits that you're, uh, these athletes really are, uh, characters though, you know, to kind of go back to those, uh, role-playing, uh, uh, roots, they kind of are, uh, you could view them as characters, uh, with their different, uh, uh, characteristics and, and abilities. It was, uh, during my time, uh. Uh, working on Madden that uh, players players were uh, contacting the company to see you know what the how they were going to be rated that was the <laughs> beginning of that and then then that's just that just exploded to where these these guys are just they'd even tweet out you know oh, I should be a 99 speed what the hell is going on I I should mm. be a 90 this guy and um their arguments to this day over uh, player ratings. I've seen that with, um, obviously, you're talking Madden, but I've seen that with FIFA, with uh, with the football, yeah, with the UK, with, I'll say UK, but soccer, soccer yeah. Uh, I've seen that with a lot of the football yeah, players. Yeah, football is for you, I know. <laughs> and I see them saying like, oh, I appreciate the uh, 99 skill, but 92 on the speed, what are you doing to me? <laughs> Stuff like that. <laughs> I, w- I was wondering, uh, like, were you guys surprised about the like popularity of uh, the the U.S. sports titles, like around the world, uh, rather than just in the U.S.? Uh, I, we, I don't think we ever expected that we'd have much uh, success with the North American sports titles outside of the U.S. Still, so, stuff like. Um, Skate or die was uh, could be global because that was more of a game than a sport, even for us working on it. But uh, uh, Madden and things like that, we never really expected those to be global. Uh, FIFA, when it was born, it was born to be global, and in fact, the the world the world is the market for uh, for FIFA, with uh, North uh, North America being an ancillary market. Well, also you um, had the uh, PGA Tour titles yes. as well. What was it like getting the license for those? That was uh, that was uh, really interesting. We were trying to get the PGA Tour license, and uh, 
I had heard that, uh, well, we had been told that those, those meetings were continuing, but they weren't going very well. And, uh, myself and uh, my my fellow associate producer we took a trip down to the headquarters at uh, in uh, sawgrass in florida and uh, we met with them and and uh, during our discussion they realized that the the people that they had previously spoken to want the right people to have been speaking to because they they realized after talking with myself and my my fellow associate producer that uh, we were the we were the two people that had the real passion for golf and for their sport and for their players and for that you know what they were do what they were doing. So I mean they they oh my god we weren't we weren't going to sign with you, but now that you you know you know all of this stuff, you know all of our players, you know about the tour and the tour history and things like that, uh, we're definitely going to sign with you. And uh, they did, and uh, that certainly made a difference back in the day because uh, there, were, uh, there were three golf games then, and uh, although it would take some time, PGA Tour ended up coming out on top. There was the Jack Nicholas golf game, who was the who was the greatest golfer of all time until Tiger came along, and some still argue that he he was the greatest golfer, or still is the greatest golfer of all time. And uh, uh, there was a game on the PC called Link, which was very very pretty to look at, but it even on state of the uh, marketplace hardware. That back in that day, uh, it would take up to about 45 seconds for it to render a scene, you know, to render, get itself rendered for one shot. So when it finally rendered, it was beautiful, but then you'd hit your shot and then you'd have to wait another 45 seconds before you could take another shot. And uh, that, that was uh, our advantage on the, that first version of PGA Tour was that we rendered very quickly, much quicker than Nicholas and much quicker than Lynx. And we also had specialty shots that actually made a difference to the, to the game. We had a, uh, a, a chip shot and a punch shot where you could actually punch your shot beneath the tree limbs and chip your shot around the green uh, much more easily than you could in those other games. And that made a difference. And then, of course, we had 60 real PGA Tour professionals in our tournament playing against you to see who would come out on top during that week's tournament. I remember yeah. that there was so many golf games out there at the time. And I, I, I was kind of wondering, was it hard to get that balance between, you know, you're talking about the realism there and uh, playability as well. Yeah, well, I, I mean, uh, I've always loved golf games, even even to this day. Uh, getting to, I worked on, uh, yeah, World Tour Golf with, on the Commodore 64 was before PGA Tour, and and that had a little golf course construction set, and so that that was a kick, uh, way way back when. But uh, yeah, I mean, you you do have to. Um, there was a uh, golf game that another publisher put out where uh, they wanted to simulate everything. They wanted it to be true simulation. So they had you, for your swing, they'd have you 
cock your wrist and turn your hip and then turn your shoulders and then move your arms up and then do all of those things in reverse just to be able to contact the ball. And uh, they may have succeeded in, in terms of simulation, but they failed in terms of it being any fun because I'll bet you you don't even know who published that or, or, or and that they, you know, they never put out another one. And, you know, it just, uh, this was a major publisher back in the day, too. So they put out this game and it just failed miserably because they had made it not fun. And we were always, for all of our sports games, trying to straddle that line between what is a simulation of the sport and what is fun for the for the gamer because it, it, this is a piece of entertainment this isn't you know we're not really trying to relive real life but it, in some ways for golfers it was kind of also a fantasy because they could also go and play on all these golf courses that they would probably never ever get a chance to play on that that was also part of the part of what we were bringing to the to the uh, fold was the fact that hey you know we've got Pebble Beach golf links in, in yeah. our game and uh, you know how many people actually get a chance to go and play there yeah just playing a video game with just the three button presses that we were asking you for you were already going to be a much better golfer than you probably were going to be in real life. <laughs> <laughs> playing our that's true <laughs> and then of course the other companies and uh, have come into the fold like uh, camelot software and and people like that that built hot shots hot shots slash everybody's golf uh that uh turned uh video golf gaming into something different but also fun in its own right so you mentioned you know like pebble beach and you know kind of going back couple of questions yeah. around the different stadiums you've got you know in the Madden games and stuff like that obviously back then you didn't have DLC like you do now so was it really important as a producer to kind of vision what you know stadiums and what locations and you know what players you needed in that game and you know I guess it was really important to get a game out every new season you know how did that process work of deciding what would go into the game oh we were really petrified about you know, we, we'd hear that uh, so-and-so is we're going to change their logo for their field, mm. you know, and you go, oh, my God, well, when are they going to reveal that? Well, they're going to reveal that in July. Well, July is about the time, unfortunately, due to leads, manufacturing leads was about the time that we were going to have to be finishing up you know, those cartridge versions of Madden. <laughs> so if they were going to be changing their logo or their insignia or their, their, the way that their uh, on-sideline stadium uh, uh, numbers were going to look, we needed to mm. find somebody to leak that to us early because otherwise it wasn't going to end up in the game. And then, of course, player movement as well. Yeah, player movement. Yeah. And we had no ability at the time if there was some in, in during season uh, trade that took place, there was no way that we could, uh, uh, could change outside, that on, the, on a cartridge. Outside, yeah. 
Yeah, we couldn't download anything to your machine. Now it's done on a weekly basis. Mm. Everything dated, which is uh, much uh, better. And I would say probably for the people working on it is probably also much more challenging because they've mm. got to they've got to continually look at the skill level of, I mean, I can't imagine for all the footballers, but all of the, all of the football teams around the globe uh, trying to keep track of how the skills of these individuals are either uh, getting better or degrading as they age on a weekly or bi-weekly basis so that they can update the statistics and get them out there. Uh, that's got to be really, really challenging for them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought it was a challenge when you were doing it kind of like a one-off per game, I guess. But when you put it like that and it's it's happening constantly, there's, you know, transfers and skill levels changing and stuff like that constantly, I, I guess it really does keep them busy. You know, as I say, these games come out every season still. So it's crazy yeah. to think, you know, I can sometimes write them off in my head as, oh, it's just a sports game, but actually the amount of effort and I think for me in this interview, it's been quite eye-opening is actually, I've never really considered the amount of stats that go into it and the programming of, you know, thinking about it kind of like a, a bit of an RPG element to it. You know, it's never really crossed my mind until now. So it's been really insightful. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it really is. I mean, you're playing with characters or you're, that uh, you can um, project onto them that that really is Ronaldo. <laughs> You know that yeah, yeah. that really is that really is messy that I'm playing with. You know, it, it is becomes uh, believable in your hands as you play with them. That that really uh, uh, mirrors or closely mirrors uh, what you see on the pitch when they're out there playing. Yeah, and I guess now you even have to capture the faces and the haircuts. And oh yeah, <laughs> all yeah, that kind of stuff. yeah, yeah. Tattoo, tattoos and. Uh, all of that stuff, yeah, all of that stuff is uh, is really expected now. I mean, if they fail to to update those things in season, uh, I think that there would be a, a backlash. Yeah. Well, I was I was wondering uh, before we finish, um, do you play any um, sports titles still yourself? Not as much as I used to. Um, I, I still play different golf games. I try to play the baseball games these days, but they're all very much too arcadey for me. In my opinion, they've gone way over the top in trying to be uh, Twitch games and trying to uh, be a simulation. You know, I just don't. I don't want that much that much Twitch in my baseball game. I'm much, I'm much more of a at this stage of my playing career, I'm much more into strategy than I am into uh, arcade play. Oh, okay. Well, um, it's it's been a, a really nice interview, and uh, it's been really fun to chat to you. You know, um, um, I, uh, sorry, this is an area that this is an area that we didn't think we'd kind of enjoy as much um, because we we're not that knowledgeable. But you've really informed us on this, and. I'm glad to have entertained you. Oh, you're you're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Mm-hmm.